Hello, and a warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Greg Knott. Greg is the head of the Africa team of international law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. He is a leading lawyer in South Africa with 28 years experience acting for significant South African and international companies. His particular focus is on the energy sector. Prior to joining NRF, he was the head of the Africa Group at a leading South African law firm and served on the management committee of Lex Africa, an African legal network. Greg has represented a number of significant international clients in the South African Renewable Procurement Program and has focused particularly on solar PV and wind projects. Greg has also been Castor Semenya's lawyer and as an advisor for over 10 years, which, alongside recent developments, is one of the reasons I am speaking with him today. So, Greg, a very warm welcome to the Africa Legal Podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Tom, and, and great to, to be interviewed by you in particular, and, and delighted to join you and the listeners of Africa Legal Podcast. So thank you very much for the kind invitation. Well, thank you for the kind words also, Greg. So listen, let's let's dive right in. Yeah. You've now represented and worked with Castor Semenya for over a decade. Tell us, how did your paths first cross? And excuse the broad question, but what aspects of your career has this uh, improved and changed and challenged? Absolutely, Tom, of course. It's, it's quite an interesting story because I... Uh, we were watching the 2009 World Championships being held in Berlin. This is my young son, Thomas, at the time, and my, who's studying law, as it, ha- it turns out to be 10 years later, and myself. And we were shouting and screaming on behalf of Custer, who then went on to win the championship. But there, soon after, was suspended for, by the RAAF uh, for her win over, over uh, issues which then became world issues over the next decade. Um, the next Sunday, I was aghast at the outcome of what had happened. I saw them as bullying tactics, saw them as really uh, draconian. And uh, this was th- this this thought came to me during the course of my walking my dog in the local Delta. And so outraged was I that I telephoned my good friend at the time, uh, Brian Curran, who headed Lawyers for Human Rights, and said to him, Brian, we've got to do something about this. So sooner or later, we met up with uh, a customer at the University of Pretoria at the High Performance Center uh, under the auspices of uh, Toby Sutcliffe, who's become a dear friend, and um, and got to meet with Custer. We took on the brief, and I must say from the outset, uh, Tom, she was as strong as she is now today. Uh, she set out her plans, her goals. I thought they were ambitious at the time. Well, little did I know that those were wrong assumptions of mine because she achieved each and every one of them, and if not more. She's now a double world champion, double Olympic champion, um, married, uh, in a wonderful position, still strong as ever, and an icon of South Africa, if not the world. I would definitely say the world, Greg. And what a wonderful story. It... it makes me want to reiterate some of the points that I've been making and our guests have been making about lawyers' ability to influence through pro bono work. And just the fact that this started with you sitting on the sofa, cheering on an athlete, 
you know, that proximity to being able to make a change and make a difference in our privileged position as a lawyer is always there. So it's another call to action for our lawyers. Don't think that genuine pro bono change is beyond your reach because Greg started his journey, sat on the sofa. (laughs) So I think it's a great example. Now, Greg, moving on to another point, we obviously hear a lot about the legal challenges and counter-challenges in the Semenya tale in the international press. But is a litigious approach the best one to manage these situations, in your opinion? Or is this a road that you feel Castor has been forced down? Excellent question, Tom, if I may say so. You know, right in the beginning of 2009, we didn't want to go the litigious route. We believed as a young girl at the time, being 18 stroke 19, she was young. We, you know, the, the, the intimidatory aspect of going to CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, sat in Lausanne to take a young woman there to put her before a scrutiny of, of opposing attorneys and arbitrators wouldn't have been the correct thing. So what we did do was go about a lengthy and drawn out process of negotiation. Luckily, we had a a Senegalese person who was part of the International Arbitration for Sport at the time, who was close to the center of power and who, who quite frankly, um, was very, um, very kind to us, if I may use that word. Uh, he, he understood the issues as an African and, and through him and his good offices and services, we managed to get together um, in Istanbul, as it turned out, um, to to thrash out a negotiated neg- negotiated settlement of Custer's return to the track, and it was through that that Custer ultimately went on to become the champion that she is today. So, to answer your question, Tom, sorry, I went off the beat a bit. To answer your question, litigation is not necessarily always the best way to to finalize or to remedy um, a a problematic solution. And to this end, I know that David Rutherford, head of the Commonwealth Remedy Committee, is is basically working very hard at uh, trying to find different remedies and different fora in which to find remedies to ensure that there's fairness in sport and an equitable result is 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 gained by by sports people who find themselves in in challenges such as we have, so that's on the cards. Um, coming back to litigation again, no, not always the solution. Coming back to CAS, you know, Tom, it was a, an extraordinarily expensive, both emotionally and financial resource draining exercise that we had to go through. We found a young African person before the court of arbitration in probably one of the wealthiest cities in Europe, if not the world, having to collect the money and find the money to to represent her as we drew on experts around the world, lawyers in Canada, lawyers in Switzerland, all of whom had to be paid. So it's terribly expensive. So in finding remedies in terms of litigation, we've also got to find the correct and appropriate forums in which these sports people must appear. And where should they appear? Need a Bilasan. It's all very fancy, but at the same time, dastardly expensive and quite intimidating. It's some fantastic points that you raise, Greg. And my worry here is that 
if there wasn't something as lucky as an African, a Senegalese representative, we could be sitting here discussing potentially two world championships, but certainly not those two Olympic wins. This is, I think it's something that's definitely food for thought in looking at whether these are systemic, uh, albeit unintentional hurdles that athletes from uh, traditionally poorer nations uh, are, are facing. You know, it's difficult enough to become, it's almost impossible to become a pro athlete and yet they face a secondary hurdle when they require to access to the infrastructure, which is yeah. allegedly set up to allow them to fairly challenge things. So certainly food for thought here, and, and let's keep in touch on, on how this develops. Um, may, you know, may, may I just very, very I don't want to necessarily um, be disingenuous in this regard, Tom. What is important that there is a sort of legal aid which athletes can apply for to get financial support for their case before CAS. But, you know, in our instance, we were disqualified from getting that the access to that those resources because we were an athlete that won certain monies. But the irony is that we had been suspended and we couldn't run races to get that money. So we were out of the... So that whole issue has to be revisited and re-looked at. Looked at with arguably eyes that aren't necessarily Western-focused eyes that have that that look upon north south rich poor black white a total vision absolutely greg the 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 journey continues so so moving on you know we have the recent development with the swiss federal tribunal upholding the previous court of arbitration for sport ruling which bars custer from competing at distances of 400 meters to a mile but where where now for caster's journey and how has she responded to this recent setback well there are two responses um uh, tom i'm sorry to make them sound binary but they in a sense are one is the legal route which i was just speaking this morning to the human rights commissioner of south africa uh mr muhammad and 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 he was informing me of, of of the strategic imperatives that have to be met so that we can um, get together both the United Nations resolutions, uh, we can we can move on diplomatic fronts, we can go before our own portfolio of sport committee in Parliament in South Africa and and thereby go back through diplomatic channels to to ensure that there's pressure placed in the appropriate uh, uh, areas to to advocate Custer's return. Uh, secondly, we also have other challenges which we can meet in different fora, such as the European Court for Human Rights, as well as uh, I was speaking to Mohammed about that as well. Um, we we have also domestic uh, routes that we could pursue where Castor say runs in South Africa. We were where we are fortunate enough to have a very progressive constitution and challenge her challenge her. Uh, uh, Fight against the regulations which we which are discriminatory and which certainly don't fit under the uh, Bill of Rights and the Constitution of South Africa. So we could go on a domestic domestic uh, uh, fight. Um, so there are a number of options legally. That's the point I'm trying to make, Tom. Uh, the other challenge, of course, is for Custer to take up on um, her different events which fall outside of 400 to 1500, which she is concentrating on. It, I'm not privy to discuss her strategy in this regard, but there is certainly a strategy. And uh, to think that we've cast Custer to to the wolves and she's gone out 
and is, it won't be seen again um, is is correctly is completely incorrect. And um, uh, I have no doubt we're going to see Custard back on the track, as full of spirit as she usually is. I spoke to her last night, strangely enough, on a completely different issue. She wasn't even harassed by the Slater's decision. We were talking about something else, and she was full of beans. So uh, it was terrific. You know, it's it's such a wonderful relationship to have with a person who's so inspirational. It's great to hear, Greg. And, uh, you know, let's not forget, this is a fast, fast human being. You know, whether it's whether it's 400 metres to a mile or elsewhere. So I will certainly be, be keeping a, a close eye on things. Now, legal commentary still developing on this point, Greg, but the European Court of Rights does look to be the, not most obvious, but the most widely purported next step. And yet the Swiss Federal Tribunal, in their judgment, did one could say, infer that there would already be hurdles to, to, to making that application. Did the tribunal overstep its bounds here by trying to second-guess the success of, a, of an appeal to a higher court? Good question. I think they were just trying to stop the gap, close the gap, as it were, as you, Londoners, well know. Mind the gap. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to seal off their judgment and... Um, and 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 make sure that that this is the final word on 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 the uh, on on the challenge. So we are not we are not phased uh, uh, by that. Uh, they they can say what they want to say. We will do our very best to unpick those those uh, locks. As Custer said, the doors are closed, but the doors are not locked. And I love that quote. Well, even if they were locked, I'd say there was a, a pro athlete is quite good at smashing through them. So yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. let's see. Now, Greg, moving on from the world of sport, there's a topic which I know is very dear to both of our hearts, that of mental health yes. and well-being. Now, as a lawyer with 28 years in practice, does the legal industry have a mental health crisis? And if so, what has led us here? And, you know, the two are not necessarily not linked, you know, the Custer story and mental health. One looks at Custer and her approach to life, the, the way she's coped with stresses of both being on the track and also with her ability to counter legal challenges. So that deals strongly with mental health. So in a way, uh, Tom, you've linked the two very well together. There, there, there is a crisis. I, uh, my, and, I, and I say so not because of empirical evidence, I see it from my own experiential um, experiences that that I come across on a daily basis, not necessarily in my firm, but just necess- but, but within the legal fraternity and and commentary that comes in and around the legal fraternity. I think the pressures upon young lawyers, in particular, are, are, are arduous um, and and they're stressful, and that's that is really um, something which we've got to get on top of as as a profession. I see it more and more, I know, within our own firm that we have on a regular updates on mental health issues and and uh, and so on, you know, bulletins and the, and, the, and the like. But I would argue as much as we learn about how to record time, we should learn about the about the stresses and challenges that that come about by being a professional at this point 
at this moment in history. You know, stress is the most specific response of the body to any demand made on it and to any environmental demands. So it's, it's something which we've really got to manage. Um, you know, what do we do about our behavior? What do we do about our environment? What do we do about um, our, our communication? What do we do about our attitude? It's the, the acronym for that is BICA. And, and when looking at Beaker, you've got to look at, you know, how do we change the environment? How do we add to it? How do we take away from it? In terms of communication, do we talk to someone? Do we write things down? And so on and so forth. So, you know, drink is prevalent, heavy drinking, uh, drug taking and narcotics is also an issue which, which has got to be confronted. Thankfully, uh, Tom, um, and it is dear to your, my heart is, is 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 recognition and acknowledgement by society as a whole that this is an issue, and and I think the easier it will become for people to come out, as it were, to recognise that there's mental health issues and challenges. Um, I don't profess to be a, a an expert in it, but I do profess to have been an ex- experienced the stresses and strains. Of practice over over these decades, and ways and manners in which in which one has to cope with it, there are certain programs such as the Alcoholics Anonymous program of the twelve step program, which is very helpful to to those who to have uh, drinking uh, uh, issues. Um, there's the narcotics program, which is similarly based. There are programs out there which should be embraced rather than. They're stigmatized, and and I think um, this is something that I hope Africa Legal can take forward and champion as 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 something very necessary to strengthen, not weaken the um, profession, um, and to embolden young professionals to seize upon it and say, "Hey, this is stressful. I can talk to somebody. Hey, this is stressful. I can do something about it. I can change my attitude, my behavior. I can look and be well looked after by my." my employers, by my partners, by my colleagues. So, yeah, mental health is vitally important. And as I say, to strengthen, not to weaken. I, I couldn't agree more. And if there was one thing that I would encourage people to do, it's it's twofold. It's honesty and communication. You, you do need to realise and be honest with yourself when you are facing problems. And instead of internalising those problems – communicate them because you will be amazed at the positive response from friends, from colleagues, from bosses, whoever it needs to be. Um, it's important that these stigmas are broken and broken again um, to build a, a, a collegiate atmosphere that genuinely supports people on, on problems that are so common, so, so common. You know, we had a wonderful guest, um, Nelson Ashativa, um, very recently, Greg, um, who is a, a leading lawyer in Kenya. And he received a phone call at three in the morning where a mentee of his was attempting suicide. But he knew the lines of communication were open and and Nelson was actually able to intervene in that case. So that's, that's the knife edge when it okay. comes to the importance of communication. But my call to action is we need to be talking years in advance of such a tragic event as someone attempting to, to to take their own life. So Greg, we've talked about some 
you know, the, the, the BCA acronym and some of the things that you found helpful. But what do we need to do as a collective and a profession to drive for a more frank and honest approach to ensuring that those in need don't sink further into the depths of mental fatigue, illness and, and long term loss of health? What can we do collectively to 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 challenge this just like Custer's case you bring it to the fore and I think what you're doing today is marvelous and in fact it's very brave and courageous of you putting it on the agenda Tom I think it's something that people like to sweep under the carpet and pretend it's not there then everyone's fine and everybody's strong and so on I suppose we do it because we don't want to appear weak in front of clients or necessarily imperfect in front of clients that we've got everything in charge and everything's fine but, but as you said, people are people, human are humans. And it's the acknowledgement, the self-acknowledgement that brings us to the fore. So I think by putting it firmly and strongly on the agenda of, of legal councils, of, of, of conferences, of writing, of communicating, of sharing, I think sharing is the biggest thing. And by that way, we can, we can loop everyone into the game. Uh, sorry, I didn't, I shouldn't really use the word game into the, in, 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 into, into something which is so all-embracing, something which is all concerning to everyone. And I think that will be helpful. So bottom line, communication, Tom, which is what you're doing today. Um, I think that spreading the message, as it were, uh, sharing, collectively sharing, and destigmatizing. Well, here's uh, Africa Legal putting our money where our mouth is. Uh, this is a, a brand and a personal call to our readers and listeners. If you have a story to share or a message related to mental health in the legal profession, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we would like to spread awareness. We would like to spread advice. We would like to do all we can to move towards building this collective safety net that we can all access at any time and know is there. So look, please do connect with us um, publicly or privately through our various social media platforms or email me directly um, at thomas at africa-legal.com. And as someone who has personally struggled with mental well-being, I would be incredibly happy to move the profession even an inch towards being more open, frank and supportive when it comes to mental health challenges. And I'm sure the same goes for, for, for Greg. Um, Greg, I, that brings us to, to time. I can't believe it. Our conversation has, has been so engaging. I feel like the, the time has whistled by and I hope the same is for all our listeners. So um, before I sign off, Greg, a very warm and genuine thanks for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Tom, and, and a warm and genuine thanks to you for the opportunity and to share a diverse and yet interrelated topics of discussion. I am privileged to be part of your your show. I wish you well on Africa Legal. I think it's a great concept and it's, it's, it really is great. And I hope it goes from strength to strength. And I'm here to to share any other thoughts as we go forward. Fantastic, Greg. Thank you so much. And so, without further ado, I will remind all of our listeners that the entire Africa Legal podcast back catalogue, now north of 25 episodes, is available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on SoundCloud. And we link to these on every single write-up of our podcasts on africalegal.com as well. 
So, without further ado, I have been Tom Pearson, and this has been the Africa Legal Podcast.